0: I mean, we're a small company. I mean, I, I love the Carver Science Park and, and all that, but it's not like some of these massive uh, deals that Ohio is landing lately. And I said, why is the Lieutenant Governor here? Why are you here? Why? And she smiled and said, you're right. We would not normally be here for a project of this size, but we all believe, she said, everybody at this table believes that commercial space is the future. And with our research, with our manufacturing, we have to be in this game.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back. For this week's episode, I really got out of the office. And over the Appalachians, into... It was in Ohio that I joined a crowd of about 106,000 Ohio State fans inside the shoe. That's what they call the Ohio State University's football stadium. The Buckeye fans were greeting Notre Dame's Fighting Irish for the season opener.
2: The Ohio State University welcomes the Fighting Irish from the University of Notre Dame.
1: More about that game later. On the university campus in Columbus, getting into and staying in the commercial space game, that's what the president of International and Space Stations at Voyager Space, Jeff Mambart, was talking about at the top, because that game is well underway in Ohio. Voyager Space is committing adult level money to build the first international space science and technology development park in the world. It's all to support its yet to be built space station. Starlab. That's right. It's not going to be government-owned or operated. And to put Voyager in perspective, it's a space-focused holding company. Its subsidiaries have numerous contracts with the Department of Defense as well as NASA. But to get back to Ohio, why Ohio? Like the state's vehicle license plates say, Ohio is the birthplace of aviation, not space launch or operations. What Ohio does do is make stuff, especially out of metal, for aviation and now also for space. Later in this episode, you're going to meet Mark Norfolk and learn how his team at Fabrasonic is using sound waves to print parts for use in space and why you might soon find their printers on orbit. But first, we're going to hear about Voyager's cunning plan in Ohio from Jeff, who by the way is a commercial space legend, and John Horak, who's a professor and the university's Neil Armstrong Chair in Aerospace Policy. Here's our conversation. Hi, Jeff. John, it's great to have you on the
0: podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: I've asked you to come on the podcast to discuss just what is happening in Ohio's space ecosystem. There's a lot of commercial activity. And thanks to the Voyager Space and NanoRacks announcement, even the really huge projects aren't actually government-owned. Now, this is where I ask my guests to introduce themselves and tell me what their next big project is. But I think we should save that because what we're really talking about today is the next big project. So before we dive in, could you take a moment to briefly introduce yourselves? And Jeff, why don't you start?
0: Okay, thanks. And it's and it is great to be here. And thanks for your interest in what we're doing in Ohio. So I'm Jeff Manber. I'm president of International and Space Stations uh, at Voyager Space, which is a little bit of an awkward title, but it's the two things I love doing. And I'm also uh, chairman of the board of Nanorax and the former CEO and uh, and so I was involved in the very beginning, uh, first at NanoRacks and now at Voyager, in our effort to have what we'll talk about today, the George Washington Carver Science Park. And with that, I'll turn it over to, uh, to John.
3: Yeah. Well, thanks, Laura. John Horak. I currently serve as the Neil Armstrong Chair in Aerospace Policy here at Ohio State, with one appointment in the College of Engineering and the other appointment in the John Glenn College of Public Affairs. I've been here since 2016 and uh, really pleased to be uh, working with Jeffrey and uh, the Nanorax and Voyager team on building the next generation of low-Earth orbit space stations.
1: You know, I was going to start with asking about how the Ohio State University prevailed in becoming the future home of what will be the world's first ever science park devoted to space, but let's get my audience caught up with what we're actually talking about. And so, Jeff, This science park is really about your commercial space station, Starlab. So what is Starlab?
0: Yeah, I realized in introducing myself, I kind of buried the lead. And uh, I have the coolest line I can say to people when I first meet them. I say, hey, I'm building a space station. And that's pretty cool, okay? So I've been at this for over three decades. Uh, uh, Very unusual. I worked on the Russian space station Mir, uh, and and help privatize that in the, uh, unfortunately, the past era uh, when Russia was part of the family of nations. Uh, and then in Nanoracks I grew Nanoracks to be the largest commercial user of the International Space Station, where today it enjoys uh, customers in over 30 countries. And NASA realizes that the ISS is coming to an end. And at the end of this decade, And so they've awarded uh, contracts to three teams um, to develop what we call free flyers. And free flyers is a fancy way to say it's its its own space station, okay? And so we um, were awarded the largest contract for 160 million, which unfortunately is a tiny fraction of what we need to build the station. And so my time is taken up with my team and colleagues uh, going around the world. Uh, And so we're in the process now of settling the architecture and uh, coming uh, to terms with uh, uh, what the final architecture will look like. And one of the things, if you want me to get into the the, uh, science park, is very important we don't just focus on the hardware building the space station. We wanna we want to also focus. One of the lessons I've learned from being involved in space stations for 25 years now is you also wanna be sure that you're involved in the pipeline, the customer base. And that's where the Carver Science Park comes in. I can talk more about that. Um, but I'll I'll turn it over to, to John at this point.
1: Well, let me just jump in. You know, this is a major Hello. undertaking, it's a space station. It's also an international consortium, and now it's part of Ohio. So how does Ohio and the Ohio State University fit into this picture? And, John, maybe you do want to answer this question.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, so here's one way to look at it. Um, I don't know if when, when my kids were little, they collected the little state quarter series of quarters where each state in the union had a quarter. And on the back, the state put something important, right? And if you think about what goes on your money, only the most important things go on your money, right? LeBron James is not on the back of the state quarter, and neither is Archie Griffin, the two-time Heisman Trophy winner. There's the Wright Brothers flyer and a moonwalking astronaut. So almost from in our DNA in Ohio, we, we believe that we have, do, and shall contribute to the pushing of the frontier of things that fly through the atmosphere and above the atmosphere. And that's reflected in in not only the the kinds of research assets that we have, not only at Ohio State, but across the university system here in Ohio. NASA Glenn Research Center is based in Cleveland. Uh, We have a very strong national security space activity uh, set going on at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So it's kind of in our DNA and Neil Armstrong and John Glenn, both from Ohio, this is who we have been, who we are, and, and I believe who we shall be that made Ohio a a compelling answer uh, to the question for Nanorex about uh, with whom do we partner? Now we're looking for the best partners around the globe. Uh, it just so happens that you know we have the uh, the, p- the pleasure and the privilege of being among the first uh, to be a part of the science park. But we, we we're bringing in other high quality university, uh, nonprofit, and commercial research entities as well, so that we can build out the best ecosystem we have and really create a new tool to solve problems in the future. Um,
0: that we're all going to face. And, and if I if I may just sort of add to, to that, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, we're replacing the International Space Station and we want to make sure that Starlab is completely international and the Science Park is international. And one of the reasons for, for choosing Ohio um, was the, is the ecosystem that's there. You have the uh, bedrock of the Ohio State University, um, you have a NASA center, um, you have Battelle. Uh, you have a lot going on in Ohio. And frankly, there was something else. Um, uh, I mean, the hospitality of the Ohio team from uh, John and the chancellor of the university, the lieutenant governor, um, the CEO of Voyager, Dylan Taylor and myself went out and we met with uh, the Ohio team. And afterwards, we, we sort of had a brief moment to catch up. Before we headed into different directions. And, you know, Dylan said, you know, this is joining the heart and soul of what American industry is about. And so, uh, you know, we made the decision that uh, this is a project for the next 10, 20 years and beyond. And uh, we want to be reflective and in one of the strongest research and development ecosystems that there is in North America, and in the industrialized world. And from there, we can go out and make it international.
1: So would it be correct to say that Team Ohio, and by extension, it's space-minded companies, big and small, and some yet to even be born, are they going to become the ground infrastructure for STARLAB? And just to clarify, are we talking ground control or, or what? I just want my audience to understand just what's going to be happening.
0: If I can uh, jump in and answer that first and then turn it over to John, I want to deflect or pivot a little bit. One point that we haven't mentioned is one of the ways this came about uh, was sort of coincidence Uh, when we bid on the uh, uh, what's called at NASA the CLD uh, Commercial Low Earth Orbit Destination uh, Project for the Free Flyer, uh, we went out and we I wanted John and the Ohio State University involved, and we wanted a really good hardware manufacturer, and that was Zinn. Uh, and w- we wanted a non for profit. Um, to be there as well to work with the universities and who else but USRA. Um, And there were some others, but son of a gun, it was all people who were located organizations in Ohio. So we sort of backed into this, where we look at when we put in the proposal uh, to have a free flyer to NASA 90 percent of the uh, organizations that we were partnering with uh, on this uh, sort of science park were already uh, uh, in Ohio. One of the others was the International Association of Science Parks, which is located in Spain. It's going to help us go um, into the international community and and we can speak more about that. Um, So I do want to say that uh, one of the reasons we're here today is because in picking the best organizations to guide us into making sure we have a pipeline and we use the space station, we ended up with a whole bunch of Ohio organizations.
1: And so as this is really your infrastructure for Starlab, what what are we talking about though? I mean, are we talking about, you know, ground control in terms of, of flight? Is it uh, science and technology development? I mean, what what is it that you're going to be doing there on the Ohio State University campus.
3: So, one of the most important things you can do before you go to space with an experiment or a person is do your homework, uh, simulate, test, retest, figure out where the limits of your hardware and your humans and your procedures are, because the, the environment of space flight, not only is it is it is it an expensive proposition to fly in space, it's really it can be very hard to recover from from challenges or upsets or failures or or breakage. And so the most important thing that we can do here on the ground is prepare, test, evaluate, and grow research so that when it gets to the space station, it's actually ready to be there. So that's a lot of ground simulation, a lot of ground research work in preparation for the flight experiment. And then when the flight experiment is ongoing, you also like to have a ground experiment going on so that you know that the differences that you see are resulting from the spaceflight environment. And then of course, in some cases, payloads research activities have to come back down to the ground and be processed uh, either figuratively, uh, you know, in terms of data processing or physically and with the hardware. And so this is a place where, where the community can gather and, and aggregate resources, assets, and, and collect their minds and interface in a way to help maximize the productivity of what we do on space, in space, uh, through that work that gets done on the ground.
0: And uh, I'm not sure if I should say this uh, publicly, um, but the the genesis of this, uh, to to everybody's surprise, this really doesn't exist in the West. Now, you isn't that counterintuitive? You would think there would be a place where everybody gathers and does as John just said. The only place that I know that has this is in China okay and and so china has a facility where you can go and all the the work on their space station is in one place as john just described and the reasons so uh this is a very unique facility and that's worth mentioning
3: yeah and and jeffrey and i I think kind of came to that separately we both had a chance independently to be in china and see these kinds of environments and then when we sat down and put our heads together we thought this is this is insane we need we need this Uh, from a collaborative position as well as a competitive position, right? It's hard to collaborate if you don't have similar assets. So that's really what led to this discussion about the full terrestrial analog ground environment. And I I believe we also must manage for the outcome of, um, you know, not just research, but education and engagement. And so that any human being that wants to understand or explore what that spaceflight environment is like, what that research is for and how that research benefits them in their daily life, that they have an opportunity to come and experience that to the greatest extent practical. We can't turn gravity off,
0: but we can do most everything else. And one of the one of the point that's worth. Um, we'll, we'll take control of this interview. You're doing it. Great.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you just, just hang out. I'll tell you everything. Yeah, you. there we, you go. Oh, i
1: still i still have my questions though so i'll just <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll jump in soon
0: okay then uh, maybe i'm i'm uh, going ahead of one of your questions but it's also important we, we've said that the uh, the reason for this is we're building our own space station a commercial space station called Starlab. uh but it's important to john and i and everyone involved in the carver science park that uh, we're not limited to our own space station. And so uh, we see this as a pipeline to the other space stations, to recoverable satellites, to interplanetary. Um, So what John described uh, is not limited to our platform as we call it in the business, but for humans working, uh, doing research in space. And now we'll turn the interview uh, back over to you if, uh, if you wish.
1: Well, thank you for that point. I think that's that is a really important point to make. But I want to sort of circle back to the money. You know, John mentioned that, you know, it's really expensive to send up experiments and send things up, uh, you know, that aren't experiments. And if either one of them fail, you know, that's 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 not chump change. And I know NASA awarded your company 160 million. 10 months ago. And while that certainly qualifies as a down payment, creating your own piece of on-orbit real estate ain't cheap. So I got to ask, do you have a ballpark price tag and where is the rest of the investment coming? Jeff?
0: Uh, great. I mean, great questions and I'll answer as, as best I, I can. in a you know, uh, these are confidential issues. But first off, it has a B in it. Okay, and unfortunately, the B starts at the beginning of the word. Okay, so, uh, you know, this is going to be a several billion dollar when you factor in the transportation um, launching it, uh, the Starlab. um, And uh, we really appreciate the NASA uh, seed money. Um, One of the other sources of funding will be NASA as a customer. Um, NASA, and they have the published rates on their website for how long an astronaut, uh, how much money uh, the, um, they will pay to have an astronaut on board the private space stations. So we, we believe that we will, you know, be able to get, uh, receive other funding from NASA, but as a customer. And then, obviously, Uh, Your listeners can surmise that we're in very good discussions with space agencies all over the world um, and saying, do you want to come in early and commit? Uh, We call it a pre-buy and we'll have some exciting announcements uh, soon. Uh, probably first quarter of next year of um, agencies stepping up to use Starlab. And then we announced a few weeks ago a fantastic announcement that Hilton Hotels Worldwide will be designing uh, our um, habitat. Uh, that's a fancy word for our crew quarters or our hotel, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think one of the British uh, rags already did. Hilton's bringing a hotel to space, okay? I mean, not quite accurate, but... Um, and and we and we had to let, you know, our friends in the industry know, no, we're not deviating from the business model and not setting up a hotel. But, but the cool factor is pretty and neat. And it's even more than that. First off, just to spend a moment on this. Uh, we began talking to Hilton before the pandemic, before we were awarded this this contract. Um and yet, during the pandemic, Hilton marched on. And when we reengaged with them after we won this award, they told us that they have made huge advances in health, uh, uh, on microbe, and and yes, I mean they on cleaning. How often you uh, you know reducing the amount of time you have to clean the towel, reducing the amount of time you have to clean the sheets, making the the crew quarters far safer, far more sanitary without the involvement of the crew. So first off, it's a wow factor to have Hilton. And we're, we're so delighted. But there's also uh, um, uh, a health factor, also design. They're, ex- they're experts on how you design to make sure the guests are comfortable. And there's really no limit to this partnership. And we do see it as them being involved in the training of uh, our visitors. And, and who knows, you, probably some of your listeners know that in the 1960s Conrad Hilton the founder dreamt about having a Hilton space station and when we kicked off the first meeting with Hilton they brought those designs so i'm not announcing today that there's any discussions with Hilton on their own space station but i'm saying that it is in their dna as well and and uh and so that's something that uh is part of the revenue stream and the branding Um, And so we see it coming from diverse uh, uh, organizations like that.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, this is all coming together pretty quickly because I read uh, on the site, at least for uh, the looking for of a director of the science park that launches in 2027.
0: Probably will go to 2028 Um, we have been um, spending this time doing two things. One, coming up with the final architecture. And this may be, uh, uh, you know, not central to your listeners, but also coming up with the business model, as I've just sort of described. And uh, Voyager is very prudent. We're not a hardware, we're not an aerospace company. um, And uh, uh, we are being very prudent to make sure we have the right partners and that we understand the business model before we start bending the metal. Um, because as I said at the, uh, at the beginning, th- uh, things like the business model, having the Carver Science Park, that's the primary uh, uh, challenge right now. We know we can select and have, and we'll announce soon the right great partners to bend the metal, but how do we make it sustainable is the challenge that we face.
1: You're certainly in the right area of the world uh, for bending metal. I mean, in Ohio, I mean, bending metal is practically part of their DNA. But going to Ohio, you know, it was a competition. And so, John, I want to ask you, what got the Ohio State University to throw its hat into the ring?
3: Well, I think we could see from the perspective of the value that we could bring uh, we are a large, comprehensive university with a uh, located in a in a vibrant economy in the state of Ohio that's super diverse in terms of the different segments of our economy. The, the university reflects that in that it has a, a world recognized medical research capability, a world recognized agricultural college world-recognized engineering college in aerospace, strength in astronomy and astrophysics, in polar studies of the of the cryosphere, part of the earth, uh, you name it. Secondly, um, it's one thing to be commercial. It's another thing to move forward to what I'll call industrialization of space. You know, I, I could make drawings and put them on Etsy and call myself a commercial enterprise, but I'm hardly an industrial enterprise. And to become an economy in low Earth orbit, you need more than just, uh, you know, to say you're commercial, you need supply chain, you need infrastructure, you need financing, you need logistics, you need a whole range of things that that move the economy in the direction of something beyond commercial and into industrial. You need suppliers. Uh, And Ohio has got all of that. This region of the country, more broadly speaking, has all of that, the upper Midwest, um, and so I think all of that put together gave us the opportunity to say, you know, we think we can add a lot of value, um, as we have in the past, to to pushing the boundaries of space flight uh, and and doing that in the future in, in a way that leverages all the strengths of of the region and the state.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be perfectly honest, John. That when I was at the tailgate party before the Buckeyes game with the Fighting Irish over the Labor Day weekend, the folks I spoke to were well. They were aware of Ohio's deep heritage in aerospace and manufacturing, and especially in metals. You know, what's Ohio's and the university's play here with partnering on a commercial space station?
3: Well, Ohio State is one of the top three uh, universities engaged in uh, research with industry, right, especially within the College of Engineering, um, and so we have strong relationships with major companies like Honda, for example, and, and Abbott, and J.P. Morgan Chase across the across the board. Uh, and so this is a this is a, a capability, if you will, a, a, a lever arm that we know how to use in terms of working at that intersection between the private sector and academia when it comes to research to generate social and economic and educational and quality of life outcomes. It's it's actually something that we're very good at, and we do already.
1: Still, you know, Jeff, you could have chosen a location in another state where you have the beach or, you know, you're free of snowstorms. What is it about Ohio, though, that said, right, this is where we're going? Or is it just, you you know, you've answered it before with their, you know, the whole ecosystem that you've already been involved in?
0: Well, first off, Laura, I was told there was a beach. There's no beach. Wait a second. A A small one. Beautiful beaches on Lake Erie. Oh, okay. So then, like Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca, I was misinformed. Okay, well, you
1: you can't bring your boogie board.
0: Okay, got it. Um, well, you know, uh, I did say earlier provide the rationale, and that we we are very pleased to be joining uh, an extraordinarily strong ecosystem that includes aerospace, space, and just as importantly, does not include aerospace and space, it's because we have to grow the pie, we have to grow the utilization of space. But let me also touch on uh, one other point. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, earlier that Dylan Taylor, the CEO of Voyager, um, got very involved in this process because we both uh, share that this is something that is going to be a 20 year project, you know, plus and in, uh, you know, a very long duration permanent um, uh, project that we're undertaking here and he wanted to be involved Um, and We had other proposals and we ended up with another written uh, proposal. Um, But, you know, right now, space is sexy. And right now, folks are interested in space because it's 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 shiny. And there's Elon Musk and there's Jeff Bezos. And that's wonderful. But Dylan and I looked at each other and said, what happens when it's not sexy? You know, uh, you know, electric uh, vehicles have their rise and fall uh, genetics. But, you know, and so we wanted a partner. We wanted a site that we knew would be there uh, for the long term. And when you, as I said earlier, you look at Battelle, you look at the Ohio State University, these, uh, you look at NASA Glenn Center, these are permanent additions. And so we see the George Washington Carver Science Park as a permanent addition, uh, no matter the the rise and fall of, of how commercial space or space exploration is doing, if that answers the question.
1: It leads into my next one, actually, quite perfectly. You know, you of all people have a long view about the space economy and knowing what the market wants before it even exists, as well as the human capital and the manufacturing infrastructure needed to launch. Your company is investing a lot into the state. So is Ohio becoming the next space place, the next space center of gravity?
0: I'll quickly tell you an anecdote, and I don't think there's any harm in sharing a a quick private conversation. When Dylan and I went out, the uh, chancellor of the university was gracious enough to host us um, at the, uh, you know, the chancellor's mansion, and we had dinner with the lieutenant governor and others. And uh, seated to my right was Dr. Grace Wang. Uh, I may get the title wrong, but I think executive vice president of R and D for Ohio State. And I turned to her at one point and said, "Why all this attention?" I mean, we're a small company. I mean, I I love the Carver Science Park and and all that, but it's not like some of these massive uh, deals that Ohio is landing lately. And I said, why is the lieutenant governor here? Why are you here? Why? And she smiled and said, you're right. We would not normally be here for a project of this size. But we all believe, she said, everybody at this table believes that commercial space is the future. And with our research, with our manufacturing, we have to be in this game, in this industry. But we don't have a launch site and we'll probably never have a launch site. And so we see the Carver Science Park as being one of the foundations, one of the seeds by which the infrastructure for commercial space will grow. So that, it, you know, it sort of answers that yes, we're thinking long term. You know, what does this mean for Ohio? It means that when we jump five years from now, I think there'll be a whole bunch of entrepreneurial space companies locating in Ohio for their research, development, manufacturing. And then you get that. You know, critical mass and you're off to the races. Did I say it right, John?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you did. And, you know, one of the things that that your audience doesn't care about, but I care about deeply is the fact that I play ice hockey still uh, as I approach 60 and I want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is or where it's been. And as commercial space has evolved, of course, the first challenge that had to get solved was how do we get to orbit? Right. And so, for example, today, as we as we're recording, you know, SpaceX launched crew five to the ISS. Congratulations. That's beautiful. Uh, Launchers and big boosters are not Ohio's strength. Ohio's strength is what do you do once you get there? What kind of research do you do? What kind of communications do you need? What kind of in space propulsion do you have? Uh, What kind of Earth observation do you might need? How do you use space? Uh, You know, the environment of space to do something once you're there. And so the commercial market has now evolved to the point where we're now addressing the question of how do we address the commercial market in terms of what you do once you get there. Because we have Firefly and we have SpaceX and we will have Blue Origin and we will have these other launch vehicle companies now that have transformed the mechanisms through which you get there. Now we need to do something valuable by being there. And that's sort of why I think Ohio now has this opportunity and will emerge as a commercial space center of excellence around what you do once you get there.
1: Jeff, John, thank you so much for your time.
3: It's been a pleasure, Laura. Thank you, Jeffrey. Great to be with you.
0: Yep. Likewise. Thanks for the interest. And we hope we can revisit and come back in about a year and see where we are. Oh, you
1: bet. I'll be there in person next time.
0: Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Open invitation.
1: Now you just heard John talk about the importance of being prepared to work in space. Fabrasonic is one such company that is eyeing the off-world possibilities. It uses sound waves, not blistering hot fire, to weld metals and create complex shapes. In what's called ultrasonic additive manufacturing, or UAM. Ben Stefanko is an engineer at Fabrasonic, and this is his explanation of Fabrasonic's build process.
4: You can think of it as essentially just uh, removing the preventative layer between um, metals to allow for a solid-state bond. And that's what makes uh, UAM really cool is that we're doing this all at a low temperature. This is all happening at a temperature where you can embed fiber optics, uh, you can embed uh, thermocouples, you can embed pretty much anything you want into a metal part using this process Without getting up to a really high temperature that in other additive processes would actually damage the internal components. Um.
1: I hate to act like a moron, but I'm going to be <laughs> one. Go for it. All right, <laughs> we we're talking ultrasonic. Yeah. Right. True. So sonic means sound. Yep. So what is the sound? Right. What is the ultrasonic sound actually doing? Is it taking away the oxidation? Is that is is that what this?
4: Yeah. So uh, it. When you go back to like your physics, any physics class you've ever taken, right, it's sound is a pressure wave. And what we're doing here is we're applying a pressure wave at a really high frequency.
1: Ben is one of 11 employees. Now, while Fabrasonic is the definition of a small business, space contracts with big-name aerospace companies and, by extension, the DoD and NASA – Well, that's helped Fabrasonic turn a profit for the past six years, and the business is growing. Fabrasonic is leaving the Ohio State University campus for a larger facility. I met up with Mark Norfolk, Fabrasonic's president and CEO, to learn more about the technology and what role it may play off-world. Here's our conversation. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me at Fabersonics here in Columbus, Ohio, on the campus of The Ohio State University.
2: No, thanks. Thanks very much for coming. We appreciate uh, having you here in Ohio and talk a little bit about aviation and aerospace uh, in, in the, the world of Ohio and allow you to get your first Ohio State game. Um, I'm sure it'll be exciting tomorrow.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it will. Um, Mark, take a moment and tell us a little about yourself and what you do here at FabriSonic.
2: Sure. Um, so, um, by training, I'm a metallurgist. Uh, that means I study uh, the behavior and the formation of different metals. Um, after school, I spent about 10 years at John Deere making tractors. Um, and it was a fantastic company, great place to work. But uh, if you look at what John Deere makes their tractors out of, um, on Monday I got to deal with steel. Uh, on Tuesday I got to deal with st- steel, and on Wednesday I got to deal with steel. So it was, you know, all the same material every day. Um, After about 10 years of that, uh, I came to start working at a small um, R&D center that does uh, focused research and development on new manufacturing technologies. Um, And in that role, I was allowed to study things like aluminums, titaniums, nickels, um, so a little bit broader variation of materials that I got to play with. And one of the technologies I, I got involved with was a technology of using sound waves to, to bond or weld dissimilar metals together. So taking thin layers of metal and welding them together. Um, and that technology actually turned out to become Fabersonic. Um At FaberSonic, I'm currently the... the president and chief window washer. Um, We're a small company, so everybody does a little bit of everything, Um, but I think that's uh, what keeps it fun and exciting.
1: Well, Fabrasonic is a welding company, but just kind of, sort of, I mean, it's a very specialized kind of welding that you do here.
2: Yeah, we're we're taking a a very subset of welding called ultrasonic welding, using sound waves to weld metals together, And then on top of that, we're taking that technique and we're doing it repeatedly. Uh, So we're taking thin layers of metal and ultrasonically welding them layer by layer to make a three-dimensional shape. So it's a type of 3D printing. Um, All of our 3D printers actually start off life as a CNC mill to which we add this printing or welding technology. Uh, So we can print a little bit of metal, mill a little bit of metal, print a little bit of metal, mill a little bit of metal to make very, very complex shapes.
1: But I mean, how do you do that? I mean, I think that you also embed sensors into this metal, and because they're sensors, that means they're sensitive, like to heat, you know, and not in a good way.
2: Yeah. yeah so ultrasonic welding uh, is interesting in that it happens essentially at room temperature. Um, when we're printing uh, aerospace aluminums. Um, the max temperature that we ever see is about 200F. So the the lowest temperature on your oven at home is as hot as our metal will ever get throughout the entire process. And it only gets to that temperature uh, for say a second or less. Um, So as we're printing this metal layer by layer, at any point we can stop, drop in an electronic package, drop in a sensor, drop in a microphone, and then continue to print right over top. And because we're not getting hot, um, we're not going to damage or destroy that that internal um, structure.
1: Now, JPL and NASA—I mean, they've they've come to you for some pretty special parts. I think you've worked a part for the Mars rover. Why don't you tell me about those kinds of projects, like what you're working on with
2: space? Yeah. So one of the biggest applications that we have in space is thermal management. Um, Through the use of our additive and subtractive process in the same same box, so to speak, we can make complex internal passageways in parts that you just can't make with traditional manufacturing. And what that means is for a heat exchanger, we can make a much higher performance, much lower weight heat exchanger um, that you just can't do with traditional manufacturing. One example is actually a radiator panel for the Mars rover. Um, NASA came to us, and uh, they asked us, hey, could could you make this part? And how the legacy manufacturing process worked is they would take an aluminum chunk, they would mill it into an ortho grid, so a a series of vertical members um, that is is very stiff, and then they would literally take a sawzall and cut into that metal uh, so that they could embed a stainless steel tube, and the stainless steel tube carried the fluid. Um, and if you look at you know their manufacturing process, it, it's actually a you know a PhD engineer who's doing that work. Uh, so it's it's a fairly lengthy and time consuming process. Um, they gave us the design of that part uh, in about December of one year, and uh, by February first week in February, they had a fully printed part. Um, and because we could make all of that part at one time in one place, we were able to take out thirty percent of the weight while also improving thermal conductivity by 30%. Um, so what we kind of bring to the table is the ability to rapidly print um, or rapidly produce uh, a heat exchanger um, that, that performs at a higher level.
1: You know, where did this technology actually come from? I mean, to use sonic yeah. waves to print metal or weld metal or, and both. I mean, yeah. w- w- what's, what's the
2: history behind this? So there's actually a space play here. Um, In the early Gemini missions um, on some of the hatches when they opened and closed them in space, um, the the hatches would actually jam a little bit. And what was happening is uh, what NASA referred to as cold welding. There was a little bit of welding between the two aluminum faces um, in in vacuum. Um, And really what's happening there is metals like to stick to other metals. Uh, But down here on Earth, all of our metals are covered with an oxide layer. But for the Gemini missions, before they launched that, they polished all those surfaces very, very finely, which reduced the oxide layer to a very thin amount. So when they slammed those hatches shut, they actually broke that oxide layer off and got metal-on-metal contact. The whole idea for ultrasonic welding is we take two pieces of metal, we put them in intimate contact, we press them together, and then we use sound waves to vibrate those metal parts. And we're just vibrating them a little bit. We're talking microns of, of vibration. But that vibration actually grinds away the oxide layer. We have virgin metal on virgin metal, and we get a solid-state bond. Um, the original applications were in the 19, late 1960s um, in electronics. Um, in that industry, they call it wire bonding. So we were taking uh, steel or a, a copper or a nickel or a gold wire and welding that to an electronics chip. What we've done is we've taken that 1960s technology that uses like 40 or 50 watts of power, and we put 10,000 watts of power into it, allowing us to weld much larger areas um, in a much more efficient timeline.
1: Now, speaking of efficiency, what's the advantage of using this kind of technology? I mean, one thing you mentioned just a few minutes ago was making a part that was 30 percent lighter. Mm-hmm. Making parts at a 30% lighter obviously means less weight. Less weight should be less launch cost. You know, what are the other advantages of of using this particular technology?
2: So there's kind of three main advantages um, to to our specific type of 3D printing. Um, The first is kind of freedom of geometry. In traditional manufacturing, you have a a drill press, you have a lathe, you have a mill, and those can only impart certain geometric um, dimensions. Um, With 3D printing, it allows you to pretty much make any geometry that you can think of. So you have a lot more freedom as a designer to create a part that is more efficient, that is more uh, thermally conductive. Um, The second thing we do really well is bond dissimilar metals. So... In a lot of our heat exchangers uh, for for satellites, we're printing aluminum and copper for thermal reasons. We're printing tantalum and titanium for radiation shielding, and we're printing ceramic fibers in order to make a a higher strength material. So we have both the freedom of geometry, and now we also bring freedom of material at any part, um, in any location in the part, we can have whatever material the designer wants. Um, And the last thing we do well, you already mentioned, that's embedding electronics, because we're, we're doing this at essentially room temperature. At any point, we can come in and drop in a circuit without damage.
1: I'd imagine this also cuts down on time, too, though, from like yeah. design to actually having something you can hold in your hand.
2: Yeah. For 3D printing, um, it allows us to iterate on designs much, much faster. Um, for instance, that, that NASA JPL part, you know, from the time we got the CAD to the time they had a part was about a month. Um, for other customers, we, we've actually done uh, kind of design iterations where we were printing a part once a week and they were changing it the next week. So from week to week, we were actually making different parts. And that allows that design to evolve very, very quickly, um, allows you to make mistakes, to fail fast and get to a, to a better solution um, in a very short amount of time.
1: And who, who are your customers? I mean, we know that NASA, which includes JPL. Mm-hmm. Who else is, you know, on the list?
2: Yeah, so we, we can't give specific names, but certainly all the aerospace OEMs, um, whether whether that be, you know, the, the, the Fortune 500 OEMs or some of the newer technology companies, uh, some of the newer launch companies that are coming out um, that, you know, maybe are uh, the new kids on the block. Um, are, are on the customer list. Uh, we do a lot of work for the Department of Defense, um, you know, the Army, the Navy, um, those type of places.
1: Space Force.
2: Space Force. Um, but once you get out of space, we're also doing work in automotive, oil and gas, um, anywhere where you have an engineer who's who's trying to really push the limits of technology. Um, we we fall right in and uh, get to do some pretty exciting projects.
1: And where is this in in terms of like the overall value chain? We call this additive manufacturing, but I'm not really sure people understand what that means.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, if you look at additive in general, um, additive or 3D printing or making a part directly from a CAD file um, is being used throughout aerospace um, uh, very, very widely. And many of those, you know, kind of new kid on the block companies are doing 3D printing in house to make their own components. Um, again, allowing them to go through design iterations faster and make components at a much faster speed than you than you can with some of the traditional methods.
1: So what are the possibilities of taking all of this off world?
2: Yeah so, manufacturing in space is a very big topic right now, not only in the, say, NASA DOD world, um, but also in the commercial sector. Um, There's a lot of money flowing into how can we make stuff in space? And and the biggest uh, kind of driver for that um, is really efficiencies. So right now, if we launch a satellite into space, that satellite, that entire satellite, has to be designed to take launch loads, And if you look at it, 60 to 70% of the weight of that satellite is just there for launch. The rest of it um, is never really used. So if we can take raw materials into space, to the moon, to Mars, um, that's a much more efficient way. And then we take those, weld them together, or manufacture things in space. Um, About three years ago, NASA um, approached us about taking our process and making it smaller. Um, If you look at our machines, uh, we just had you actually standing inside of one of our machines. Our machines are typically fairly large, and that's not going to work in space.
1: No, it's very large.
2: So a couple years ago, they they kind of uh, helped fund us on developing a smaller scale system um, that can basically fit in your hand. Um, So we're making a a printing device that can kind of fit in your hand. And and that uh, really allowed us to shrink our technology and actually spun off a, a new machine for us. Um, but right now, um, kind of the, the next question to be answered is, is we've shown that we can shrink it down in size, we can shrink it down in power, because power is very important. But the next question is, can we do it in a vacuum? So we actually just got a contract from NASA um, to make welds in a vacuum. So later today, we'll show you our vacuum chamber. Uh, we're going to be putting our welding device in a vacuum chamber here in the next few weeks and actually making welds and proving out um, that this technology uh, can, can print uh, you know, in orbit.
1: You know, I don't think many people think of Ohio or additive manufacturing and space all together, all at once in in one sentence or one thought. Even the folks here in Ohio, I mean, do they know that space is like right here in their backyard? And I'm not talking about, you know, the the usual NASA center, but that, you know, it's part of the manufacturing landscape.
2: Yeah, Uh Aerospace and space in particular are a huge part of Ohio's manufacturing infrastructure. Um, actually, if you look at like Airbus, um, Airbus, uh, if you look at the, the volume of parts that they buy from the United States, the highest volume is actually coming out of Ohio. Uh, if you look at you know Dayton area, that's where the Wright brothers came out of. We have Air Force Base there. Um, there's a lot of innovation happening in both kind of aerospace design, but also in aerospace manufacturing. Um, I think the reason you don't hear more about it is most of those suppliers, most of those vendors, most of those innovators are like us, smaller businesses, small to medium-sized businesses, Um, and they're all over the state, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, um, Cleveland. Um, In fact, uh, the U.S.'s largest um, government-funded research center for additive manufacturing or 3D printing is actually in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, So we have this great infrastructure, and it's all playing off of each other, um, to to create great results, reason the public hasn't heard about it is we're, we're typically smaller businesses, but that's okay. We're doing great stuff.
1: Mark, thank you so much for having
2: me. Thanks so much for coming out. We enjoyed having you.
1: And here's one final note: the Ohio State Buckeyes beat Notre Dame's Fighting Irish twenty-one to ten. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.